Well, good evening. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to begin a uh, mini-series, I guess, uh, of three sermons on the book of Ruth. Uh, it is an entirely appropriate book to be looking at in the context of Christmas, uh, in the context of celebration, uh, the, the reminder that we serve a God who would love us enough to really reach out in, in such a way, to see that we have a God uh, who would come as a man. Uh, to, we have here in the book of Ruth, you see, we have this book that reminds us that this God who would reach out in Christmas, well, he was involved in the saving business long before that day in Bethlehem. But in order to really appreciate how this book relates to Christmas and to us, we really need to see the book in its own context. We need to see what it actually says for itself. We begin to... I'm afraid have to strip away sometimes some of the unhelpful things that get attached to this book. You see, one of the problems with having uh, an Old Testament scholar doing the book of Ruth uh, is uh, that I'm going to insist that we look at this book properly. <laughs> I'm going to insist that we don't treat it uh, like a biblical version of Snow White or Cinderella, um, where we seem to apply some sort of vacuous and somewhat demeaning understanding to this wonderful text. You see, rather, it's my hope that as we look at this book of Ruth, that we see the lessons in this book are far more powerful and make far greater demands on us than we may have imagined. And so let us just remind ourselves, I think, we're, for where I'm wanting to really focus, which is on the first five verses, let me just remind us of what they said. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the, journey, uh, in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machon and Kilian. Uh, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Uh, these took more about wives. The name of the first one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. Uh, they lived there about 10 years. And both Machlon and Kilian died. So the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Now one of the most amazing things about the book of Ruth is that it's not really about Ruth. Uh, like all of the books in the Bible, the person that's really primarily about is, of course, God. Uh, just like every other book in the Bible, God is the, the, the key character in every book. However, it may surprise some of you to realize this evening that Ruth is not even the principal human character in this book. Now, this book that shares her name. Now, this reading that I've emphasized, uh, which sets up the whole book, uh, really makes this point. Uh, the character introduced at the outset, uh, the one that remains in, as a constant presence throughout, uh, the one that it concludes with in chapter 4, is, of course, Naomi. And this is really important that we grasp this. It's really important that we kind of emphasize those first five verses because the anguish of this woman is something that is very easily skipped over, something that's very easily uh, seen as an incidental prop to a love story, as if it was of very little real consequence. And we make a mistake when we do this. 
You see, the love that is at the center of this book is not for, it's not from Boaz to Ruth. Uh, the love at the center of this book is the love of God for Naomi. And that rather changes how we read this book. It rather changes how we understand what is going on in this book. And so, whilst God is the primary character, in a secondary sense, when we read about these people, we read about Naomi. Uh, To be honest, all of the personal stories in the Old Testament are like this. It's not that I'm just randomly coming up with this conclusion that it's about Naomi. Uh, If you look at any of the uh, personal narratives in the Bible, whether it's Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, whether it's Job or David, it doesn't really matter which one you go to. uh, The main character is at the beginning. You see them through the middle, and it finishes with them, (laughs) which is what we have here with Naomi. And with each of those characters, uh, you know, you go with them through their lives as high points, and there is also many low points, and you see how God interacts with them through it all. It is important then we notice that Ruth is not introduced at the outset. She barely registers in the opening chapter, except for her striking statement in verse 16. Instead, we are introduced to the story of Naomi as she leaves her famine-stricken land with her husband and her boys, a family she will lose. And Naomi remains central to the text. And of course, the book finishes with that genealogy that includes Obed, a child given to Naomi from God in verse 17 in chapter 4. As such, what we have here in this book is the rescue of a woman who had been broken by life. A a woman who's actually uh, on the scrap heap as far as society is concerned, and yet this is a woman who is valued by God. It's a wondrous tale of love, but it's a wondrous tale of God's love to Naomi. And the way that he shows this love isn't through um, earthquakes or burning bushes or anything else like that, but in the simple embrace of a young woman, Ruth, who shows a constant love that is itself a reflection of the love of God into the darkness that has enveloped Naomi's life. This is important As I've already mentioned, Naomi is not a prop for the love story that comes later on. We don't just skip through to get to the good bit, as it were. Naomi is the story. And that changes what we hear. It alters how we understand the role of Ruth, which is wondrous. And so as I really feel I need to emphasize, this is not a story about a woman rescued by the love of a good man. We have here a woman rescued by the love of God. And that's an important message. Uh, Not least because it contrasts a lot of the mistreatment of an awful lot of women in the Bible. Now, when we think of of Hagar, the banished, um, we could have uh, Leah, the unloved, uh, Tamar, the unwanted. Uh, Each of them were women that God loved, even when the men in their lives treated them appallingly. God meets with Hagar in the desert. He rescues her life and the life of her child and blesses them beyond anything that could have been imagined. Leah, the ugly older sister with bad eyesight, has to live with Rachel, who has the devoted love of their shared husband, a man who thinks 
nothing of her. Tamer, the unwanted, is kept at arm's length from her uh, husband-to-be, her promised husband. And yet those two unregarded, unwanted women, uh, Leah and Tamar, God loves them. And he brings them in and he says, okay, so, you know, the men in your lives may not care. They may not do what they're supposed to do, but I have something special in mind for you. And they become part of the line of promise. Their children have children that will lead to the Messiah. These women who are unwanted become some of the most important women in the whole of creation. These women lie behind what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That's what God thought about those women. And so when we come to the book of Ruth, when we think of Naomi, when we think of this old widow taking center stage, we see another broken woman. She's no comparison to the great heroines of the Bible. She's no Deborah or Rebecca or Hulda or Miriam. She's not one of these wonderful, strong characters. Naomi is of no regard. She is ordinary. She is to be honest, a burden on society. She is in pain. She is full of doubt. In fact, she has no value whatsoever except in the eyes of God. And so he reaches out to her in a way that is so commonplace that it could be overlooked. So let us take our time then to look at this woman, to look at what breaks this woman in order to understand the book that we are looking at. The introduction opens then with our main character, who, with her husband Elimelech and the two sons, Machlon and Kilian, emigrate to Moab, so uh, modern-day Jordan, uh, due to a famine in Bethlehem, which is ironic because, of course, Bethlehem means the house of bread. (laughs) But there is no bread. Famine was a common national problem at this time. This is the time of the judges. There's been cycles of rebellion against God, and so there are cycles of violence, extreme violence, and warfare. And so famine uh, was quite common at this time uh, in a land ravaged by war. And so whilst we think of the the national sphere in judges, and we think of, of it all happening there, here we see the consequences in the life of a specific family. As Elimelech, in a war-torn, dangerous land, leaves with his family. Now, I know theologically we're supposed to say, now Elimelech, you shouldn't have done that. (laughs) We're supposed to say, Elimelech, what do you think you're doing leaving the land of promise for Moab? But as the father of four children, I'll be honest, sometimes I have an element of sympathy. It may be misplaced. Uh, but I look at that and I think, if that was me in that land and there's no food and everyone is rebelling against God, you know, There is a piece of me which thinks, I I get it. I I can't really point the finger at the man. (laughs) Not really. But where I do draw the line is this sojourning, a place just to get some peace, just to get some food for his family, becomes settling down, becomes adopting a way of life, of marrying in and turning his back, really, on the land and on God. But I get it. He leaves. 
And he leaves with his family. And Naomi, you know, she's kind of hidden amongst all these male figures. You know, you've got Elimelech and Machlon and Killian. But as the opening verses unfold, these men are stripped away from the text until Naomi is desolate and alone. It's a degree of calamity that would allow comparisons to job. In five short verses, death wipes the men from the scene. And it's a really unexpected twist in the story. Because Naomi is stripped of all of that honor that her culture would have given her as a wife and as a mother. Because these were lauded things. And that's her concern. She thinks her value, she thinks her purpose is at an end. Because that's what her culture would tell her. As far as she is concerned, her story is over. There's nothing left to tell. These losses, this bitter lament from Naomi, shows us that this is a woman who is broken by the cruel turns that her life has taken. And yet that's where the story really starts, because our female job is still loved by God. Now, on a tangent, as an aside... You know, uh, uh, bonus material, if you wish. Uh, When we think about this, sometimes we still apply some of these ancient cultural norms to ourselves. Sometimes we we laud mothers and wives. We sometimes pretend that being a, a mother, for example, gives you greater status in a church than if you're not. It's not true. What happens is when you are born, you're given a value from God no matter what, men and women. And if you happen to be a wife, if you happen to be a mother, it's not that those things give you value. You give the roles value. I mean, after all, you give be a rotten mother. <laughs> you be a terrible wife. <laughs> those are not the things that give you value. God gives you value. And it can never be taken away, no matter what. But that's not what her culture told her. Sometimes if we're honest, maybe just subconsciously, maybe that's not what we tell ourselves. And the problem is that when we put our valuation in the hands of something else other than God, well, our value can go up and down. (laughs) And one moment, Naomi's on the crest of a wave. She's a wife. She's a mother of two sons. And the next minute, it's gone. And so she imagines that her inherent value is gone as well. And so God is going to do something. Now, this is why it's really important. We we can't afford to look at the book of Ruth and see it as some sort of lightweight romantic piece in amongst the rather heavier, more theological material that is all around it. It is a book which stands on its own, contributes on how we understand God in the darkest moments of human existence. You know, it's actually really frightening when God doesn't just simply turn up and save the day. When our lives take a a dramatic turn for the worst, and God doesn't just fix it. It's frightening. 
You see, more often than not, instead of just leaping in and fixing whatever it is, God chooses to weep alongside us, to walk with us. In a life when the the shards of a broken heart make taking the very next breath seem impossible, God is there with us in the darkness. Now, this is a God who says, one day I will wipe away every tear. But he is a God who will dwell in the grief of his people. He will be there with us in the midst of it. That's why we need this story. That is why the deaths of our beloved family should not just be props. They shouldn't just be a mere introduction to a lovely story. They're important. If we casually step over the debris of this woman's life, well, not only do we fail to understand what the book is about, not only do we fail to grasp something of the nature of God, but it then becomes very easy to step over the debris of other people's lives. You know, point to maybe some sort of future happy story. It's easy for other people to step over the debris of our lives. We don't understand that this is the story. We can't minimize her suffering, because then we minimize our own. It's not just simply a prelude to a blessing. These verses need to be seen in their own right, because this is the basis for this book. We need this text. It reminds us that with Naomi, that even when we despair, when we think we have no value, when society would think of us as nothing, God sees us differently. So let us think about these events that reduce Naomi into a woman uh, known as the bitter one in, in verse 20. In these opening verses, Naomi's had the horror of famine, of being displaced from her country, far away from her extended family and friends. And it's a sojourning that takes 10 years. And whilst abroad, her husband dies. Undeterred, the single parent sees her boys married, sees them settled. Not an easy thing for a woman to achieve in the Moabite culture. So whilst she suffered incredible loss, she still has security through her sons. You know, her old age is going to be seen to. But her tale of woe continues. You see, after 10 years of marriage, there have been no children. She has no grandchildren in a culture where this mattered a great deal. Ten years to watch the line of Abelimelech slowly wither away. And so the future of the family hangs in the balance. They wait for these children. And God does not step in and solve the problem. God does not come in and just simply give them what they want. Instead, there is the unthinkable, the premature deaths of not just one, but both of her sons. And so alongside the overwhelming grief of that loss, Naomi has also lost all of her security for the future. The family line has been ended, and culturally her standing has now been reduced to zero. And she's overwhelmed. 
You know, famine, displacement, widowhood, childlessness, living in a foreign land, all of these she has managed. She is standing firm, but now she is broken. And her heated outbursts, at first to her daughter-in-laws, and later on when she goes back to Bethlehem, they can shock us if we allow ourselves to be too distant from the pain that she is going through. From what she says, it is clear that Naomi has lost her belief that God will be good to her. She still believes in God. She's lost some of that faith in his goodness. She expresses a hope here that her daughters, uh, daughter-in-law, may be blessed, but she considers God to view her in a similar way to her society. She thinks that God looks at her and sees a person of no value. And so into this personal story of grief, God responds. And he doesn't do it, as I said, you know, in clouds and and lightning, a a voice from a whirlwind, but in the embrace of two human beings. Uh, The first is from Ruth, as we read about in that opening chapter, that act of faith from that incredible woman. And the second embrace is from this infant child, Obed, at the end of the book, a physical sign of the grace from God to Naomi. And at that point, she is a woman restored. So a lot happens between the first embrace and the last one. Now, the embrace of Ruth takes place after Naomi has managed to persuade Orpah to leave. It is an embrace set in an unremarkable place, somewhere on the road between Moab and Bethlehem. It's an embrace between two, you know, on the surface of things, two unremarkable people, two widows with no discernible value. But this is the moment that we see the beginning of the rescue of Naomi. It's not just a simple, uh, tender display of affection from Ruth to her mother-in-law. This is part of the response of God through Ruth. God will not let Naomi go. His love, his hesed, will not allow it. Now, I mentioned hesed a few weeks ago. It's okay, it's not a quiz or a test. I'm not going to test you on it. But let me just remind you a little bit on what hesed really is, because this is the key very much to understanding the book. Uh, Later on, it mentions it in, in later chapters. But hesed is a really important Hebrew word because it is the love of God. It's a word that is separate from all the other words for love that the Hebrew people had. And that's mostly because this was a love that could not be compared. It is a love that cannot be comprehended. We cannot say love because instantly we've we've tarnished it by all the things we imagine love to be. The way I think about it, Hesed is what brought about creation. It's what breathed life into Adam, saw him walk with man even after the fall. Hesed is the reason that God repeatedly rescues our broken race. It sees him reach out to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It comforts Hagar in the desert and Naomi in her grief and Leah in her isolation. It is the word that lies behind the children of Israel being rescued from Egypt. It's what motivates God's utter hatred and enmity towards suffering and sin. 
Hesed will not allow us to be forever without hope. And so that is the reason. Hesed, this love of God, is why we have Christmas. It's why we have a cross. It's why we have an empty tomb. It is a love that first loved us. It is a love that loves us long before we were even born. It is a love that will not let us go. It is a love that gives us a future. A future we can depend upon that is beyond all doubt. A future without tears because of this love. And it is an immeasurable and incomparable word, is it? That's the short version. And it is in the context of Hesed that we grasp the significance of what Ruth does. Although it's the book of Naomi, Ruth is not incidental to the whole thing. Ruth is the means by which God is going to rescue Naomi. And that's what we read about in uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 10. Um, when, when Boaz is, is speaking, he says, uh, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last hesed greater than the first. And the idea is, is that it's not just simply that Ruth is showing some sort of affection towards Naomi. She is showing the love of God to Naomi. I think it's incredible. I've just told you that we can't grasp this word, we can't begin to imagine this word, and yet a human being was able to show that love to somebody else. No wonder I'm excited when I read something like that. It means that it is entirely possible for each and every one of us to act as a mirror for the love of God. I mean, the mirror doesn't possess the light, it just simply reflects it on. Uh, the idea that we could be the hands of God in a situation, embracing those who are broken. Uh, the, the idea that we could be the voice of God, speaking comfort to those who mourn. That's incredible. It also explains an awful lot because the actions of Ruth make no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Not humanly, anyway. On the surface, Naomi is the one who's being rational. She's the one supported by all the evidence. Uh, Human wisdom would have demanded that Ruth did not accompany Naomi back to Bethlehem, but instead uh, accompanied her sister-in-law, Orpah, and abandoned this old woman. Bethlehem does not promise a new start to the younger widow. She's a Moabite, which was not uh, particularly well accepted. She is childless. She has a track record of barrenness. She goes without a father figure to arrange a new match. And so accompanying Naomi on the surface of things is utterly hopeless. You know, it's very easy to reduce Ruth. I've already been commenting on how we reduce Naomi and ignore her. But it's very easy to reduce Ruth. We reduce her to some poor figure in the need of, of the rescue of a good man. It's a dangerous lesson to take from this book. And completely wrong. Instead, Ruth, I would argue, is comparable to Abram when he was called to leave his home. You know, the great patriarch, the man of faith. Well, Ruth can be compared to that. Only 
Abram was supported by a direct call from God. He has a wife, a family, servants, and great wealth. Ruth, by comparison, stands alone. She's not even wanted by Naomi, her traveling companion. There's been no dramatic call from God. There's no booming voice, no flashing lights, no whale to swallow her up and spit her out on the right destination. There's no Damascus road or burning bush, no meeting God face to face in order to receive promises about her future. No human has come to her aid. She has no support, and her decision should logically result in her isolation and destitution for the rest of her life. Ruth breaks with her family. She breaks with her traditions. She breaks with her country and the faith of her ancestors. Instead of seeking security with her father or with another husband, she walks with God alongside Naomi, who offers nothing. So I suppose in that regard, I would suggest that the faith of Ruth could be said to eclipse that of the great patriarch. She deliberately sabotages her future by trusting in God, embracing Naomi as the representative of God in that situation. And you'd kind of hope that Naomi would be grateful, wouldn't you? (laughs) I mean, it's such a big thing that she's doing. And Naomi... She's broken. She's in pain. And she does not respond instantly. By the end of the book, the old woman is restored. She is found praising God. But then if we imagine Ruth to simply be kind, or Boaz simply as handsome and financially solvent, we miss the point entirely. This is a book of the love of God that reaches the lost and the broken through people of Hesed people who reflect him. And so when we read of Ruth and Boaz, we're not supposed to have our hearts aflutter at the romance, but have our hearts aflame as we see the purposes of God working through ordinary people. It's okay to be a group of ordinary people because we have an extraordinary God. There is no limit to what he can do. But when we read the book, we're not simply to look at the romantic couple and say, I want that. We're supposed to see the unstoppable love of God reflected in his people and say, ah, this, this is what I want. To be a reflection of God. To have his heart. To be his hands reaching out to those who do not know him. Or those who have been battered by life. Those who have been endlessly disappointed and broken by the storms that have beset them. And when we understand that, the rest of the book falls into place. So... What does that all mean in terms of a conclusion? Well, the lessons of the book of Ruth, um, I'm afraid, are very often silenced. We don't really get to hear what the book is really saying. And very often we can end up with a rather warped view of the book, of God, and of women. When we come to this text, very often we see Ruth, uh, we see that she gets married, she has a baby, and we imagine it's her great rescue story. We teach our girls and our young women the lessons of Cinderella and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, and we say it's the same as the Word of God. We teach them that their role is to grab some sort of prince, and in them, in these princes, they will find completeness. In these men that they marry, that they will be rescued in some way. Well, I have to say, 
brothers and sisters. That's a lie. Uh, the, the Disney promises are not what's in the Word of God. There is but one prince that we are all to look to to be rescued. Uh, the one that came not as an ordinary man, but the prince that was born in Bethlehem, the one that we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus Christ, who became a man to rescue us all. And if we teach that salvation is found through any other, if we teach that the purpose of a life, the completeness that we seek is found in any other, well, I'm afraid that idolatry needs to be ripped out. (laughs) We need to teach our girls, our young women, and the rest of us, that Christ is the prince. Christ is the center. That is where we find completeness. That is where we find rescue. You don't have to sit there hoping one day your prince will come. He did. Came in Bethlehem. And even now he intercedes on our behalf. This means that as we continue our series, we'll see that the purpose of the book of Ruth is pretty much the same as the purpose of Christmas. (laughs) The rescue of people. People thought beyond all rescue because of the wondrous love of God. A love that is unstoppable and indestructible and, I'm afraid, indescribable. Because of the love of God, we can see him as our Redeemer. Born in the same town that Naomi finds her rescuer. And as such, it's really important that we understand that today, right now, God is still intent on reaching the broken people. Uh, The broken people that he reached throughout his life when he walked on earth. The broken people that he was reaching out to here with Naomi and the rest. You see, we're we're coming up to Christmas. It's okay, we're in December, I'm allowed to say that now. Uh, You know, we are, we're coming up to Christmas. We're going to be doing Advent and everything else. Uh, Hopefully increasingly excited as Christmas comes. Um, It's been really wonderful for me to to, to have children because I I look at them and I do see this excitement that they have for Christmas. I mean, let's be honest, it's mostly to do with the presents, but, you know, they're they're excited as the days come and and, and that's been able to, to, to inspire myself to be a little bit more excited than I used to be. But we need to remember the lessons of Naomi. When we come up to Christmas, there are many people here and outside of this place who have more in common with Naomi as we get closer to Christmas. For many, Christmas is not a time where our hearts readily rejoice. For many, it's a time where we're assailed by a keen sense of loss. We become very conscious of the absence where once love stood. For others, Christmas is just simply a collection of unhappy memories, a time of incredible hurt. And it's not enough to just simply kind of see that as something to be skipped over, the debris of people's lives to be ignored and just, you know, tell them to put a smile on and celebrate Christmas. It's not what God does. He doesn't say just put on a smile. He says, I'll cry with you. I'll be there with you. We need to see Naomi in the context of Christmas because we need to see that we still have a God who reaches out into the brokenness of life with comfort. 
Now, the others amongst us here, those who are not Naomi, well, the other one to be like, I suppose, as we head towards Christmas, is Ruth. It was quite a tall order to be the ones who bring the comfort. In the book of Ruth, we found this woman who was rescued, not by a man, but by God, through people who lived as a reflection of God. Uh, The book reminds us that here and now we have no need for burning bushes. We have no need for Damascus roads or thunderbolts or anything else because God still reaches the lost and the broken through us. For us to be those arms embracing, to, to be like Ruth, a people of Hesed, a people that reflect God as he reaches out to bring comfort to the broken. That's the message of Ruth. Um, It's a shame I have to stop at chapter one, but we do have two more weeks to go. And there's so much more in there related to Christmas. Remember, this is a story of Naomi because it's a story of God, what he's like. And though there is restoration by chapter four, there is still chapter one. There are many people who are in that place, in chapter one, in their lives. It's our job to be a reflection of God, to see them restored and praising God, as it were, in chapter four. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you just now, we are very conscious that if we are called to be Ruth, that there is all too often too much of a gap between who we're supposed to be and who we are. Lord, too often we're not a people who reflect Hesed. But Lord, we thank you that it is your love that needs to be reflected. It is your comfort that is going out. And so we simply pray, Lord, that you would enable us to have the joy of taking part in what you are doing. Uh, to raise us up, to be the people that we need to be. Lord, for many of us, Christmas is a time of feeling like Naomi. And I pray, Heavenly Father, we would be reminded that you inhabit our tears as much as our praises, that you are the one who would weep with us and who has promised to wipe away every tear, all of those salty locks of our lifetimes, Lord, just wiped away where we can be restored and healed. We thank you that that's who you are. We thank you that you are God. We praise your name and we just simply ask, Lord, that we would know that comfort. In Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen.